0: Luke chapter 11, if you're new to the Bible, you can find in the table of contents a page number for the Gospel of Luke, turn to the 11th chapter, and we are going to read and study this morning verses 1 through 13, Luke 11 verses 1 through 13, if you're there, say Amen. If you still need some more time, say hold up. All right, we got mostly amens. I think we can begin to read. If you need a Bible, by the way, raise your hand and Usher will stick one into it. Luke 11, starting with verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which one of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed, with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because uh, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock I want to speak to you on a simple theme this morning, and that is prayer requests. Prayer requests. I don't think I've ever actually spoke a sermon, preached a sermon, on that narrow of a topic. Prayer requests. What do we ask? What do we request? How do we request in prayer? Let's pray and let's jump into it. Father, we thank you for this time that we can uh, spend together in your word. And we ask that as we uh, focus on this simple topic of prayer requests, that you will teach us how to pray. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Michael Reeves, in a little book called Enjoy Your Prayer Life, he highlights Martin Luther's prayer life he quotes a a short phrase that is supposedly from the lips of Martin Luther. And that phrase is this, I have so much to do, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I wonder how many of us have prayed that, looking at your busy schedules. I have so much to do today, I need to spend at least three hours in prayer. I know I have never prayed that prayer. Uh, That is a indeed convicting prayer. It reminds us of the importance of prayer, even in the midst of a busy life. What Reeves points out in his book is that uh, we don't know if Luther ever actually said that. He then quotes a real Martin Luther quote. Luther wrote a letter to his friend Philip. And his friend Philip was praising Luther for his amazing prayer life. And in response to Philip's praise, Luther writes this, You extol me so much, your high opinion of me shames me and tortures me, since, unfortunately, I sit here like a fool and hardened in leisure. I pray little. I do not sigh for the church of God. In short, I should be ardent in spirit, but I am ardent in the flesh, in lust, laziness, leisure, and sleepiness. Already eight days have passed in which I have written nothing, in which I have not prayed or studied. This is partly because of temptations of the flesh, partly because I am tortured by other burdens. I am strangely encouraged by that quote. I'm encouraged to be reminded that God does great things through people, not because people are great, but because God is great. I'm encouraged to know the way and the power in which God might use you in your life really has nothing to do with how well you do in your spiritual disciplines. It has everything to do with who God is. Somebody better be saying amen already in this sermon. Come on. I'm encouraged to know that the fight for a good prayer life is not a modern problem. It's a human problem. It's a very old problem. It's a problem that those we highly respect had. Christians should not struggle with our prayer life. It just shouldn't be the case. It should be as natural for us as it is for a fish to swim in water. It's our natural habitat. Yet Christians do struggle in their prayer life. I've never met a man or a woman who says, I'm 100% in my prayer life. How's your prayer life? The typical response is, it could be better. If you're a human, you struggle, I'm making an assumption here, I get it, but you struggle in your prayer life. I wonder if anybody here would raise their hand and say, I pray perfectly. I pray so much I could actually do with a little less. Now we all fight for prayer. And that is because prayer is intimately connected with faith. Prayer is actually the exercise of your faith. We struggle to pray because we struggle in our faith. We struggle in our faith because we're sinners. We're in our flesh. Yes, the most critical and crucial part of us, our souls, we've been redeemed. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. Yet we're still in these fleshly bodies that are prone toward lust and laziness and all of these other L's that Luther quoted. And so therefore we struggle in our faith. We walk often not by faith, but we walk by sight. Our problems are problems that we can see. Faith has nothing to do with what we can see. And so therefore, we tend to become utterly self-reliant. We're all prone to it. We rely on ourselves to figure out our problems. We rely on ourselves to meet our needs. We rely on ourselves to get even with somebody. We rely on ourselves to make it right with somebody. We are all prone toward self-reliance, and self-reliance is the opposite of faith. Jesus invites us to be people of faith, and the exercise of that faith is to be people who rely not on ourselves, but rely on God, I am convinced the more we grow in our faith, the more our prayer life is going to be better. I'm convinced the more we understand the heart of God and who God is and, and grow in our understanding of this God and see how trustworthy God is, see how able and willing God is, I am convinced that our prayer life will increase. You know, I could give you a number of different tactics, tools, methods of prayer. All of those things can be very helpful. But I think at the very core, we have to address our lack of faith. And so what I want to do this morning is is I want us to look at God. I want us to see who God is. I want us to see the sun. And grow in our faith. So that we might grow in our prayer life. Jesus prayer life must have been phenomenal. It was so striking that in verse one as Jesus is praying in a certain place the response of his disciples is Lord teach us to do that. Teach us how to pray. What a great question of the disciples for Jesus. You know, the disciples are fools in so many ways throughout the Gospels. They're right on here. What a great question to ask Jesus. Teach us. Would you teach us how to pray? The question, then, is how to pray. Forget how Joel prays. Forget how Grandma prays. Forget how Luther prays. How does Jesus pray? That's what they want to learn. That's what they want to know in their question. How do we pray? The answer is simple. We pray in the way that Jesus prays. What Jesus does is He gives them this model prayer. This is often called the Lord's Prayer. It might be better called the Disciples' Prayer because it's something given to the disciples or the Pattern Prayer or the Model Prayer. We pray it often. As a, as a church. It's a teaching tool for us so that we might, one, corporately pray together or individually, but also so that we might learn how to pray. Now, when we read the Lord's Prayer, we should read it more like jazz instead of classical music. What I mean by that, and I've learned this from Leo, in classical music, you have all of the notes written out and you rigidly follow all of the notes. Now, a classical musician might not like the fact that I describe them as doing it rigidly. I don't know. I'm not a musician of that caliber. I just strum a guitar, all right? (laughs) I look at a a couple chords, and I just strum those. But people that are trained know how to follow notes. Are you guys tracking with me? And a classical musician, they they follow it uh, to a T. In jazz, however. The note patterns are different. You, you don't have every single note uh, that you play. I actually, some time ago, I had Leo illustrate this for us one Sunday morning, uh, because I, I was I was blown away. one time listening to Leo play the trumpet, and he's doing all of these different like riffs and different things, patterns. Uh, uh, what would you call those? That we'll just call it that. And I was like, Leo, is that written down for you? And he was like, No, uh, you just you have this basic pattern of notes and then you improv, and you follow that basic model in your own style, with your own riffs. I think that is how we approach the Lord's Prayer, meaning we don't pray it as a script. We don't pray it rigidly. This isn't the only thing we can pray, but He gives us a pattern, if you would, and we as prayers improv in this pattern and make it our own are you tracking with me and so Jesus then teaching them how to pray gives them this structure and we learn about Jesus own prayer life as we learn his structure of prayer he begins with the word father right there we learn something about prayer Jesus is eternally in communion with the Father. What we have to recognize at this point is that the Son, who is eternally the Son, has been in eternal communication with God the Father. He knows how to talk to the Father. We are learning how to pray from somebody who's been praying eternally. Wrap your mind around that. We have been created in the image of God, and if God is eternally in communion, in communication with one another, then what does that mean for even the reason we have something like language? Is it not given to us first and foremost primarily so that we might reflect the image of God and be in a regular, ongoing communication with the Father? Jesus addresses the Father. He directs our attention to the Father. And then from there, we see what Jesus is passionate about. So, how do we pray? Let's pray what Jesus is passionate about. Let's learn what his passions are and let's pray accordingly. What's Jesus passionate about? Well, first we see He's passionate about God's holiness and God's fame. He says, hallowed be your name. And that word hallowed means to be completely set apart, to be completely distinct, to be completely holy in in all of your character and every aspect. So He's concerned about the holiness of God, but not just that. Hallowed be your name, name would be synonymous with fame. He's saying, May all the world know how wonderful you are. May your fame in the world be that of holiness. May your glory extend to every single part of this creation. Secondly, he is concerned and passionate about God's rule and God's reign. He says, May your kingdom come. That is both temporal and eternal, meaning right now, in this moment, may you rule and reign in our hearts, the invisible aspect of God's kingdom. May that come now. May the church be united as Christ rules and reigns in our hearts. There's this temporal aspect, but also a future, an eternal aspect. May your kingdom one day crash to earth. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. May God's reality become our reality. He then moves from these big grand schemes to personal needs. He addresses our needs. He he says pray. He's passionate about us and our physical needs. He's also passionate about our spiritual needs. First, he prays for the physical needs. He says, give us this day our daily bread. As I prayed earlier, that doesn't say daily steak. It doesn't say give us this day all that we would ever need for the rest of our life. It doesn't say give us this day barns of plenty so that we might never have to work again. He says, Father, provide for us now. It's interesting to look at the biblical story and see how God provided for Israel in the wilderness. It was not enough for the entire 40 years. Day by day, He gave them just enough manna for that day. God, provide for us today. Provide for me the funds that I need to pay for the electricity I'm using today. Provide for the gas I need to get to work today. Provide for my stomach and my children's stomachs today. We can trust God to provide for us. Do you realize that? He wants us to pray for our daily bread. The basic necessities of life. Survival. And then he goes on and he addresses spiritual needs. Forgive us. What a wonderful prayer that is. I can't tell you how many times I have prayed the prayer, God forgive me for my sin. That is not a prayer that you pray at your conversion and never pray it again. It is a prayer that Christians, we pray every day and we delight in that prayer. Because that prayer means that God is answering it. And God is forgiving you of your sins. Oh, that is even better than your daily bread. Take away my daily bread. Forgive me of my sins. Let us never make light of God's forgiveness. It's also framed by the way that we forgive others, meaning those who are forgiven much are those who forgive much. And there's this recognition, this prayer for love for others as we extend forgiveness. To those who have wronged us finally there's a third request in the lord's prayer and that is to lead us not into temptation jesus knowing how weak we are is passionate about us not being led to moments of temptation we don't pray merely that we would be able to resist temptation we pray god don't even let me get to that point of temptation because i know how weak i am These are the things that Jesus is passionate about. And like a nice jazz musician, we pray this prayer in our own way. We improv, if you would. And we make this a pattern, a model that we follow as we learn how to ask of God. Now the key here is all requests... Made to the Father are positioned under the banner of God's glory. Let me rephrase that because this is so, or restate that because this is such a huge point. All of the requests that we ask of God are positioned underneath the banner of God's glory. What I mean by that is that Jesus prays for God's glory first. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. May you be glorified in all of the earth and in our hearts. He prays first for God's glory and then he prays for our various physical needs. Meaning, it is important that we pray for our daily bread, but let's pray for God's glory first. Let's pray For a change of circumstances, indeed. But first, pray for character. Pray for faith before you pray for a fix. Pray for sanctification before you pray for stuff. Pray for patience before you pray for pleasure. Pray for confidence in the Lord before you pray for comfort. Pray for conviction before you pray for convenience. The point is God's glory first. Our needs second. A a simple tip here is simply this. When you ask something of God, be sure that you can give a God-glorifying reason as to why he should answer that prayer request. Meaning there are some things that we don't necessarily need to pray for. I don't think we need to pray that we would be wealthy just for the sake of being wealthy. I don't think we need to pray that we would be popular just for the sake of being popular. I remember as as a child, I desperately wanted to play professional basketball and I prayed. I prayed with faith that God would let me play in the National Basketball Association. I don't think I was praying for his glory, he didn't answer that prayer request. I don't know if I could have attached a God-glorifying reason as to why I so badly wanted to play professional basketball. I was too short, too slow, too everything else. He didn't answer that prayer request, and we're going to talk about why God doesn't answer some of our, our prayer requests in just a moment. But when we do, ask. We've got to challenge ourselves. Can I... Give a God-glorifying reason for this prayer request. Is there some promise of God that He's given me or His people that is attached to this prayer request in some fashion? Currently, our van is sitting right here, dead. I spent, I'm going to tell you, I spent $750 on Thursday getting my van fixed. And on Saturday, the alternator went out. Is it right to pray, God, please, let our van get fixed? In a timely manner. The answer is, yeah, that could be right. And it could be wrong. It depends why I'm asking it. I have to ask myself, why should God help us get this van fixed? Is there a God-glorifying reason? Well, I think there very well could be, that we could use it for God-glorifying purposes, to serve our children, to serve our neighbors, to serve our church, to get us to the airport on Tuesday, to take off as a family uh, without having to be a burden to somebody else to get us there. there. There are some God glory. So I'm praying in that way. I'm giving you a real life example this morning in my prayer life. How in, is this request under the banner of God's glory? Donald Whitney. He uh, used an ex- example of this. Uh, he's, a, he's an author and a professor. He used an example of his own life to illustrate this. His dad was dying of cancer. His dad was older and suffering. And in the car outside of the hospital, Whitney is in tears. And he's begging God, God, please let my dad live. And then he asked himself, can I give a God-glorifying reason as to why God should answer that prayer request? And all he could think of were selfish reasons. If his dad were to live, he would continue to suffer in this earth. He was older. His body was wrecked. And so he modified, or he changed his prayer request. And he said, God, in my Father's final days, would You continue to keep Him in Your grace? And would He continue to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? until his last breath. And he said God answered that prayer request. That was a God-glorifying modification, you see, of a prayer request. Are there times to pray for someone's survival? Absolutely. I pray, God, that they would live so that they might serve you. I pray that they would live so that they might serve their children. I, I, I pray that they might live so that they might know you. But again, we are, we are attaching that request to God-glorifying, big kingdom sort of stuff. Yeah. And that is what fuels and frames our prayer requests. I challenge my children at the dinner table when we have family worship together. And every night we go around and ask for prayer requests. And Haddon often prays that he'll win his basketball game. And I'll challenge him: Is there a God-glorifying reason as to why God should help you win this basketball game. And he'll come up with something. (laughs) Amen. So Jesus gives them this model, and then Jesus goes and tells them two quick parables to illustrate the heart of God. And I want to catch this. Jesus intentionally attaches this to the model. What Jesus is showing us is first how to pray, how to frame our prayer requests, but also he wants us to see not just something about us, but something about God. He wants us to see the heart of God. A man is banging on the door. It is midnight. This man has had friends show up at his house unannounced in the middle of the night, And in this day and age, hospitality is sacred, meaning you've got to have something to give your your guests who come into your home. Evidently, he's got nothing in the house to feed him. The bakery is closed. It's the middle of the night. So what does he do? He goes to his friend's house, and he's banging on his friend's door, asking him for three loaves. That's just enough to feed one person. He's asking his friend for three loaves of bread, and his friend is sleeping in what would have been a one-room house, which was the, the, the poor in that day lived together in one house with the animals. The family would all sleep together in one section. Probably a large family, probably a lot of children. You can only imagine how annoyed this man is. As his kids are starting to stir, there's a knock on the door, and he's asking for three loaves of bread. And there's this exchange that goes back. We don't know how long, but the man denies him. He says, no, I can't give you anything. My kids are going to wake up. Like, get out of here, please. Can we deal with it in the morning? The guy continues to knock. And Jesus says he doesn't help him because he's his friend. He says in verse 8, he helps him because of his impudence. I have never heard that word before. Impudence. That means shameless persistence. What he's saying is, is the guy eventually gives in. Probably by this time, the kids are all awake. And everybody's crying, and the guy is angry and annoyed, and he takes a couple loaves, not because he loves the guy. Not because that's his friend who he wants to help. He does it because the guy is shameless in his persistence. And he says, here, take the bread and get out of my sight. First, do you realize that Jesus tells us that God wants us to be persistent in our prayer? He wants us to come to Him with persistence. But the point I want to draw out Is not our persistence, but God's willingness that we see in this passage. The first thing Jesus wants to show us about the character of God is that God is willing. Listen, he lays down this parable not as a one-to-one parallel of who God is. Not all parallels work like that. Some, Some are intended that way, some are not intended that way. This parable is a how much more so parable. Meaning, he lays this story down and says essentially if this man will help, will answer the request of another man because he is annoyed. He doesn't even like the guy, he doesn't even want to be his neighbor. He's doing it because he's annoyed. How much more so will God willingly answer your prayer request? That's what he's saying. God is willing. We struggle with this because we struggle in our view of God. So often we think of God as this far-off, distant deity who kind of puts things into place and lets things go. Some people believe he's in control of all things in some kind of mechanistic manner, like like a a, a set of clock uh, ticking, and, and it's just going on and on and on. But he doesn't really have any interaction with it. He doesn't have any care for it. Others believe that God is so far distant, he doesn't have any control at all. We view God as far off, not caring, not really concerned with the fact that I need three loaves of bread. I am convinced our problem is not that we ask too much of God, but that we really just don't ask God for much. God is willing to help us When John F. Kennedy was the president of the United States, Life Magazine published some pictures of Kennedy's children playing on the floor of the Oval Office. And Kennedy's playing with them. And these pictures went what we would call today viral. The nation erupted with appreciation for these these pictures. Why is that? Well, it's because this leader of the most powerful nation on The earth is a father. It changed the nation's view of John F. Kennedy. They saw him not just through the lens of this powerful individual, but through the lens of a daddy. Jesus wants us to see God for who he is. And if you are a Christian, if you've repented and turned from your sins, you have been adopted into God's family, and He is your Father. Yeah. And so therefore, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open." everything that we ask that glorifies God will be given to us. Oh, let's first begin with our salvation. If you're not a Christian, know that right now you can ask of God, God, save me from my sins, and He will save you. Not because of how well you respond. Not because of who you are. Not because of how much faith you can muster up, but because of His power. Because He is a Father who is willing. He is willing to provide for us our needs. And He's even willing to provide for us our God-glorifying desires. God is willing. The second thing Jesus shows us in these short parables is that God is good. God is good. There's a little boy walking down the avenue with his father, and the little boy asks his father for some lake trout. The father says, absolutely, and they walk in, uh, and, and instead of lake trout, he buys him a serpent. That same man's daughter, the next morning, asks for a scrambled egg. And he says, I would love to make you a scrambled egg. And he walks out back, and he grabs a scorpion. I guess they live in Arizona or something. He grabs a scorpion, and he brings it in, and he puts it in a bowl and says, here you go. Jesus' parables, they're so ridiculous, they make a point. He's saying, what father would do that? What father would intentionally do something harmful for their, for their, for their children? On the grand picture of who God is, we are evil. Yeah. We, are, we are downright evil yeah. when you compare yourself to God. And he's saying, you who are evil, you know how not to give poison to your kids on Christmas morning. If you who are rebels, I mean, some of the most wicked people you know, you know, you watch like these documentaries on like these drug lords and godfathers, oh man, they love their kids. They knew how to provide for their kids. He's saying you who are depraved given over to your wickedness given over to your sin if you know how to be good to your kids don't you think that God our father who has no iniquity in his being don't you think he knows how to be good to you he is not only willing he says but God is good he's good He goes on to say He'll give you far more than bread. But to those who ask, He will give you the Holy Spirit. Now some of you might be surprised by that. That might seem like a given to some people. Oh, of course the Holy Spirit. I need some bread. Well, let's put bread aside for a second. and Imagine what what life would be like without the Holy Spirit. He gives us, yes, our daily bread, but even more. He showers us in His very Spirit. At conversion, He gives us the Spirit of God who cleanses you of your sin because of the blood of Christ. He forgives you of your sin. The Spirit then fills you and seals you and continues to equip you and encourage you in your faith. But the Spirit also directs you day by day as you live your life so that you live your life with wisdom. Amen. Meaning the Spirit convicts you when you need to get a job in order to pay your rent. The Spirit Uh, uh, encourages you when you are down and, and too discouraged to do anything. The Spirit, listen, Solomon built a kingdom. And he built a kingdom based on his prayer life. But he didn't pray prayers that then caused God to plop a kingdom into his lap. He prayed for what? Anybody? He prayed for wisdom. And then he lived his life accordingly. Don't you see how God provides for us? Giving us the Spirit is so much more than just plopping something into our lap. We have the Holy Spirit of God. We have all wisdom. And then we live our lives accordingly. Now, this whole passage is is framed by this picture of God as our Father, meaning He is willing and He is good to His children. Now, some of you, you read this concept of God as Father, you pray to Him as Father, and that's challenging for you because of your earthly father. You might have a wrong view of God because you're viewing God through the lens of your earthly father who's not around. He never was around. Don't allow our earthly fathers to create a standard for God. Allow God's standard to become the standard of our earthly fathers. He sets the standard. He sets the standard. And so we come to Him, not as an absent father, but as a willing father. We come to Him, not as a father who forgot us, but as a good father. And because He's good, listen, He won't give you a scorpion. He won't give you a serpent. Like there are times where we deserve scorpions and serpents, and He still gives us an egg. And what was the other thing? Fish. He still gives us something good. Yeah. Sometimes we don't even ask for it. And He gives us our heart's desires. Yeah. Sometimes we do ask for it, but we don't realize we're asking for a scorpion. Wow. The National Basketball Association, that could have been a scorpion for me. Right? Yeah. That, that job that you want so badly could be a scorpion. That relationship that you want with somebody, could be a scorpion. That boyfriend or girlfriend who left you and you are chasing after them so hard trying to get, they could be a scorpion for you. Like as we pray for things, listen, we pray trusting him. Meaning if what I'm praying for is a scorpion, don't give it to me. If it doesn't come, we have to trust that it is under the category of all things that work together for good to them who love Him. I'll give you an example as a corporate family here. Our church has been praying for a building for a while. Now, praise God, we're in a room with air conditioning. This is wonderful. But it's not really what we were praying for. We still don't have a building of our own in the neighborhood that we really think Would help us. It must be that at least up until today, getting a building would be a scorpion for us. Uh, You see what I'm saying? We trust God when it doesn't come. And we know that our Father knows what's best for us. And if it comes, it'll come when it's best for us and when it's good for us. It falls under the category of all things that work together for good to them who love Him. It's like a child who wants to eat Snickers bars for dinner. They think that that will nourish them. It won't. A good father will not answer that request and give them what is good. But he's good and he's willing. Sometimes our prayers are so confused we don't even know what we're asking for. Do you know that Jesus prays for us do you know that Jesus intercesses on our behalf? Do you know that Jesus can make out your confused prayers and spit them to God the Father in a way that completely makes sense? That is the power that we have in prayer because God is good and God is willing. My grandmother in probably the year 2007 or so was with me in Ohio and I shared with the church there about this desire that I had to plan a church in Baltimore. And so it was the first time that my grandmother heard of this desire that I had to plan a church and she handed me a napkin after the service and on the napkin she wrote, prayer changes things. She was emphasizing something. She was instructing me in that moment. This is what you're going to need. And that that stuck with me. It's such a simple... Simple phrase, and I'm sure my grandmother didn't come up with it. I'm sure you've heard it. But what a simple phrase that is jaw-dropping. Prayer, prayer changes things. The simple logic of this text is that there are things that we don't have because we don't ask. Now that's the Bible. That's, that's the book of James, chapter 4, verse 2. You have not because you ask not. Now this is mind-boggling for me. So I won't explain it, I'll just state it. And that is this, prayer is God's means of accomplishing His purposes in the world. Meaning, yes, God has His purposes, but that doesn't mean we just sit back prayerlessly and watch Him do His thing. No. In the same way that you exercising your faith is His means of saving you, prayer is His means of accomplishing things in this world. You have not, James says, because you ask not. So how then do we come to God in prayer. First, we come through the blood of Jesus Christ. The same Jesus that teaches us how to pray is the Jesus that died for us so that we can pray. I am convicted in my prayer life when I think of the cross. Thomas Watson put it this way. He says, Jesus went more readily to the cross than we go to the throne of grace which means I am called to go to the throne of grace and to pray. Yet I hesitate. Yet I don't. Yet I walk slowly. Yet I stumble along the way. Jesus was called to go to the cross to bear the sins of humanity, to take on an excruciatingly painful physical death and spiritual death. As he died in our place, and listen, he did not hesitate. Because Jesus went boldly to the cross, I can go boldly to the throne of God's grace. For that early that Sunday morning, Jesus woke up. He got up from the dead. He arose. And in his resurrection, there is no fear. There's no fear of death. You are called to turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ and run after him in that life. And as we run after Christ, we're running toward the throne of God. How do we do it? We do it with shameless boldness. That's how we go to, to the throne of God. Shameless boldness. There's a story told of a king. He's in his throne room with counselors and advisors, his noblemen are there, his high ministers are there, and there's a bang and a clatter at the door, and a young boy bounces into the room. A guard stops the boy and says, don't you know you're disturbing the counsel of the king? And the boy laughs, yes, he's king, but he's also my daddy. And he jumps into the arms of his father. Church, we don't approach God as a cruel dictator. We don't approach God as merely a judge. We don't approach God as a distant deity. We don't approach God as an absentee Father. But we approach Him as our Father who is good and who is willing. We come with a shameless boldness To the throne of God. Because we come in the blood of His Son. And as we come to the throne of God, we recognize that He is willing to do whatever. Whatever we ask in His name for His glory. And He's good. He will do for us always what is right. He will never do for us what is wrong. And church, He is able. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or imagine according to the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 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 Father, we thank You that we can boldly come to You and ask. I pray, God, that we will be a church of prayer. Whether it's times when we gather together as a body on Sunday mornings or Sunday night prayer meetings, whether it's more informal gatherings or even our daily individual prayer life, I pray, God, that You will increase our faith in who You are And as a natural result, we will commune with you. We will come to you. We will pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.